First Bible reading from the Old Testament is from Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he always also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And our second reading, Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 14 through to 3, 6. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to, make, to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as a builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. There are times when the Christian faith just isn't doing it for you. You aren't getting much out of it. Your life isn't going that better, or you're just getting tired of it. It could even be that being a believer is not only not helping, it's making things worse. You're getting pushback from others you admire because you confess Christ or it's restricting your life's options. You need to live a little. 
And that's when the temptation is to let the Christian faith slide, to focus on other things in your life that may be better for you. Maybe eventually give up the Christian faith altogether. Or just keep this name, but live in a way has no purchase on your life. Is that you? Could that be you one day? The New Testament book we're starting at the moment in the series simply called To the Hebrews speaks directly to that situation and has something starting to say to us. The reason it speaks directly to the situation is that the Christian faith wasn't doing it for the people who were the first readers either. It was all going badly for them and they're in a mess. As we've been hearing, to the Hebrews is most likely addressed to Greek-speaking Jewish believers in Christ who are living probably in Rome in the mid-60s, mid-early 60s of the first century. They were facing a crisis of their world falling apart. It appears that some 15 or so years earlier, they had come to Christ with considerable enthusiasm and energy, despite hardship and persecution. We've already heard this, but I'd let me remind you again, the, the writer reminds them what it was like in chapter 10, verse 32 and following. He says, remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you're exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Well, that was then, and now is now, and the next sentence in chapter 10 suggests they are no longer traveling that well. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. So do not throw away your confidence. See, it's one thing to start with enthusiasm and life. It's another when things get, when you get ground down spiritually and emotionally, find yourself exhausted after years, decades of hardship. In the case of the original readers, it got, it may have got particularly intense. After the great fire of Rome in the year 64, there were increasing attacks on the weird sect of Christians who faced shaming, violence, hatred, and even death. That may well have been the context of to the Hebrews. And the pressure they faced was the pressure to go back to where they were. After all, that's the whole point of shaming and violence anyway, after all. For them, the pressure wasn't to give up belief in God or go back into mainstream pagan Roman society. After all, they were Jews, already part of a minority group in the first century, albeit a minority group that people understood that they were there and gradually accepted them. Now, but this group had become a minority within a minority, Jews who believed in Jesus as the, as the Messiah. For them, the pressure, overwhelming pressure would have been to fall back into the relative safety of the traditional Jewish community and forget all this Jesus Messiah stuff. Now, that's a situation that the author of To the Hebrews is writing in his word of exhortation, as he describes it in chapter 13, verse 22. That is a kind of first century form of a homily or sermon. 
rather than, rather than a typical letter. It's a written homily. And although the writer was well known to his readers, we know nothing of him other than he was a creative theologian, well trained in the exposition of the Greek scriptures. That is the Greek translation of what we call the Old Testament. It's commonly called the Septuagint. How does the author address the crisis facing his readers? Well, as we're already finding out and become clearer as the series develops, there are three great themes, three great themes of to the Hebrews. The first is the greatness of the salvation in Christ the divine son, who is supreme above all else. That's such a theme, in fact, that a church I visited two weeks ago down in Melbourne, who are also for some reason doing Hebrews, will call their whole series simply better, better. That's the first thing. The second theme is the adverse of that. Um, it's about the dread disaster of then falling away from that which is so great. It's almost the higher you are, the greater the fall. So that's the theme of warning and danger. And the third great theme is about the present availability of help. He urges his readers to approach the throne of God, the divine presence, with confidence and security and hope because Jesus is both the model of endurance and also the one who has had lived experience of suffering like they're going through. In other words, not just about hanging on to Christ by yourself to avoid the dread fall, there is aid from the divine presence of God himself. The other three aids, three goals. And we've seen them all already, only, only starting chapter three, and already we've seen them. The first theme, the greatness of Christ, is the way the, the homily begins, the very starting words, bang, out, out of the gates. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. He is the exact representation of God's glory and the, and the exact radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The greatness of Christ, better. The second theme we've picked up in the exhortation at the end of chapter, so beginning rather of chapter two, the end of all that Jesus is greater than all the angel stuff we heard, right? What, what, what's the cash value of that? Hebrews 2, 1 to 3. We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so we not, do not drift away. Since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received his just punishment, he's speaking of the message God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. He goes on, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? He's speaking in the message of salvation spoken by the Son. It's even worse to fall away from that. That's the danger of pulling back. And the third one, we got the, last week in Justin's sermon open to us, where we learned there that the pioneer of our salvation, our champion in salvation, has fully shared the human condition. He has, the, I said, the lived experience of living our lives so that, as the last few words of chapter 2 put it, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted and able to help those who are being tempted. And the word for tempted there, the verb there, um, parismai, means tempted or tested. 
the same verb. So I, in fact, I suspect tested makes more sense to us. He was tested. He has had the experience he can help you, reader, as you're now being squeezed and tested. Greatness of Christ in salvation, the divine son. Two, pulling back. Th don't pull back, I should say. Three, the help in time of need. Now, the short passage that follows, which is my focus for the remainder of the sermon, is a kind of development of the number one, the greatness of Christ, the divine son. Hebrews chapter three, verses one to six, builds on what's come before and introduces to us an important contrast that's been so far below the surface uh, and will dominate the structure of Hebrews. In chapter three, verse one, and don't forget chapter divisions are not in the original. This is all much later, right? So you, you, sometimes they're helpful, sometimes, as in Hebrews, they're often not helpful, in fact. We learn that, having, that Jesus, having shared in the human condition, is a merciful and faithful high priest, able to help those who are tested, the writer then, then applies it, as it were, to his readers, makes an exhortation. Hebrews has a number of these key moments when the, when the author, as it were, addresses his readership directly with, with a strong exhortation. So here, therefore, he says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Some of you may know the last phrase in another translation, the apostle and high priest of our confession. They're addressed as holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. They've been made holy by, that is able to enter the divine presence by Jesus, the pioneer of their salvation. They are partakers in the heavenly calling in that they are called into the presence of God where they enjoyed privileged access to him. And the key sentence here is, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts. The word could mean observe closely, um, consider carefully. It's the intentional focus of attention, intentional focus of intention, attention rather that's been called for. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, our apostle and high priest. It's odd to hear Jesus called an apostle. It's the only time in the New Testament. Apostle simply means one who is sent, a missionary or a delegate, sent, the sent one. And Jesus has apostles, but here he's described as an apostle, the one whom God has sent, the one commissioned, if you like. The other term is high priest, and that will figure prominently in the, later in the Hebrews and is central to the great Day of Atonement festival of Leviticus 15, which will such, play such an important role in chapters eight and nine. A high priest is a, one of the people, one of us, two, appointed by God, three, to represent the people to God. Someone appointed, one of us, appointed by God to represent us to God and, and to serve, serve God on our behalf. That's the high priest is, and that's what Jesus is, and more, more of that to come. If, if Jesus, the apostle, as it were, is sent from God, you might say the high priest is sent back, as it were, on our behalf to God, by God, of course. And the point is this, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Notice what the author's doing here. In fact, he's been doing it since we started to the Hebrews. 
Now, it may well be the case that for the readers, the Christian faith isn't doing it for them at the moment. But the author doesn't mention what the Christian faith should be doing or not doing for them. Where is his focus? Fix your thoughts on Jesus. It's not about them. It's, not about, it's about him. That's the test. It's about the son through whom God has spoken. It's about the one who has shared the humanity of those who need to be freed from the fear of death. It's about the one who has been crowned with glory and honour. It's about the one who has become a merciful and faithful high priest, making atonement for the sins of his people. It's about the one who, because he himself has suffered, when he was tested, is able to help those who are now being tested. So they fix their thoughts not on their troubles or why the Christian faith is or is not working for them at the moment, but fix their thoughts on Jesus, their apostle and high priest. Very, very important. Very important for them, very important for us. We may not be in any, any situation comparable to the crisis hitting those Hellenistic Jewish believers in Rome in the time of Emperor Nero. And yet, the issues are not unrelated. Our focus is not to be what the Christian faith is doing for me, but fixed on Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. What he's saying is don't look in, don't even look across actually at this point, but look up. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, apostle and high priest. Now, one of the advantages of preaching here at Church Hill is you get advance warning about where the sermon's going to go. And therefore, you can practice the application during the week, you see. Well, I've tried that, and let me tell you, it's not easy. It may be simple in concept, but it's not easy in practice. I'm warning you right now, because you get distracted. How am I going? What's my week like? You know what I mean? So take it from me, it's had a go, it's had a go, it's not easy. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Back to Hebrews 3. There's something else about Jesus, very important. From verse 2, the writer makes a comparison between Jesus and a figure of immense significance to his readers. Now for us, the figure of Moses may be distant and even unclear. In fact, we only kind of get Moses because we get Jesus and then you get the Old, Old Testament prequel, as it were, thrown in afterwards. For the original readers, it was nothing like that. One scholar has put it, and I quote, it is difficult to exaggerate the importance of Moses in Judaism at the time and the veneration with which he was regarded Difficult to imagine, to exaggerate his, the, the, the veneration which he was regarded. See, we take it for granted that Jesus is greater than Moses. You know, that's obvious. For the original readers, they need to be reassured. And it means more to them than it would mean to us. We think, oh, greater than Moses, easy peasy. No, very significant for the readers. And you can get something of the importance of Moses from what our first reading, the words of the Lord, to Moses' jealous siblings, Aaron and Miriam, who are a bit jealous and upset that Moses is sort of in the center, and the Lord gets them outside and gives them a talking to. And here's what he says, this is verse six of chapter 12 of Numbers. He says, when there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. 
This is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face. Clearly not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. That's a pretty big rap, isn't it, right? Face to face, sees the form of the Lord. My servant Moses, faithful in my house. The point of the writer is going to make is this. If Moses was faithful and worthy of honour, so was Jesus, only more so. You see this in chapter 2, sorry, chapter 3, verse 2 of Hebrews. He, that's Jesus, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So there's a comparison there. Jesus has been found greater worthy than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. Now, it's certainly true that the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. I mean, how often have you met a humble architect? It's hard to tell whether the author here is making the point that Jesus is worthy of more honour than Moses, for example, as a builder of a house is greater than a house, or whether there's an underlying link here that's not brought out that Jesus somehow is a builder of the house, of God's house. It's just hinted at. And you also notice in this text the word, the word house slides in meaning from a building, which you build, to a household, a community, a family. And that slide, by the way, is very common. All through Building, temple, people, that, con- that slide is very common throughout the whole Hebrew and Greek scriptures, and it works in English as well. The house of Windsor, meaning a, pl- meaning a family, or the house of my house, meaning my, where I live. And so he goes on in verse 4, having said that Moses is of greater worth than, so Jesus than Moses, as the builder of a house is greater worth than the house, he then has a kind of general phrase, for every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything, right? That puts everyone in their place, that does. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses by the same degree as God has more honour than the universe he created. That's a big range of better. And there's another difference between the two. Verse 5. Moses was faithful in God's servant as a servant in God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Moses faithful as a servant in all God's house. Christ faithful as a son over God's house. Now, this is not putting Moses down. um, But as with all the Hebrews, Moses... Christ is built upon Moses' honour. Moses is the bedrock on which the writer exalts Christ. I mean, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various places, but in these last days, spoken to us by a son. Although here, the contrast now is not between prophets and the son, but between a servant, an attendant, and a son in a household. You'll find both servants and sons in households, but, and Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, he writes. By the way, if you've got the church Bible open, you'll notice that's in quotation marks, in I've done that, which of course were not available in the common Greek of the first century. But they're signaling that this sentence is a citation. It's a quote from Numbers 12, 7, which we read earlier on, only in the Greek Old Testament version. Here's the contrast. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what God, what will be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is a servant, is a faithful as a son over God's house. 
Not a criticism of Moses, he was faithful as far as he goes, but there's a different standard of faithfulness for the family, among who belongs in the family, than someone, however, however great, is an attendant. A son is family in the way an attendant or servant is not. Even though you'd find both in, in, uh, in Hellenistic households. And although this is not said in as many words here, it will be said in many words later on, Jesus' faithfulness was the faithfulness of one who, though a son, learnt obedience from what he suffered. The faithfulness of one who, the son though he was, learned obedience from what he suffered. Therefore, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the one who is faithful over God's house as a son in obedient suffering. He is presented here, in other words, as a model for the believers who are struggling and a model for us. And that's the way this little section ends, in fact. Finally, at the very end, the author does talk about the situation of his readers. Not about whether it's working for them or not, but about their status. He says, and we are his house, that is God's house, if we indeed hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. We are indeed his house, the house over which Jesus is faithful as a son, the house of God, house now shifting from building to family. We are indeed his house, if indeed we hold firmly to the confidence and hope in which we glory. Don't look in, don't look out, look up. Look forward, you might say, to that which not yet seen, but will be seen. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point. Not how you're going, but focusing on that, our confidence and, and, and glory in our hope. Looking up. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Let me pray. We thank you, Father, for the immense privilege it is to know Jesus and have the opportunity by confidence in him to actually be your house. Our prayer is a simple one. Please, through that, Lord Jesus, draw our hearts to him, that wherever our lives are going at the moment, or will go in the future, we'll fix our thoughts on him, and therefore stand by the confidence and hope that we have. In his blessed name we pray. Amen. <laughs>